How are you doing? The headline in the Jewish press on Wednesday read, Why the Peace Process is Dead. The article went on to explain that Palestinian and Israeli leaders can't even agree on the terms to sit down at the peace table, much less the terms for peace. Of course, that's been a perpetual headline in Israel. I think the question is not really why is the peace process dead, but when was it ever alive? All the way back in Jeremiah's day, he said in Jeremiah 6.14, they are saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. In a recent survey, thousands of men were asked what they want more than anything else in their homes. They didn't say a new recliner. They didn't say a big screen TV. They didn't say a faster computer. They said the number one thing they wanted in their homes was peace and tranquility. If you're a sports fan, you'll know that L.A. Lakers forward and NBA bad boy Ron Artest changed his name last year to Meta World Peace. The original request was denied by the judge because he had unpaid traffic tickets. Got that resolved, and he became World Peace. He says he changed his name, quote, to inspire and bring youth together all around the world. His inspiration didn't last very long because two months ago, he was suspended seven games for throwing a flagrant elbow into the head of James Harden and causing a concussion. Interestingly, though publicly he said he was wrong, world peace never apologized to Harden. Now, I don't think many of us expected him to be the answer to world peace or even the mascot. God tells us why in Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. He says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We've been talking about being unspotted by the world, as James tells us in the last verse of chapter 1. And John tells us all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All that is in the world is lust and pride, which when you boil it down is really selfishness. And selfishness always breeds conflict. So when Jesus says we're to be in the world but not of the world, when Jesus says we're to be in the world but different from the world, that we're to be in the world but distinct from the world, it's not surprising that one of the ways we're to be different is in the area of peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. In this world where peace is a hot topic of conversation, in this world where everyone wants peace, 
and yet it's missing on the international scene, on the home scene, and on the personal scene. People should be able to look at your life and my life and say, that's peace. Now, what does that mean? What does peace look like in your life? When we talk about peace, we need to understand that there are three aspects to peace. There is peace with God, there is peace within, and there is peace with others. And I want you to understand, those are not three parallel, unrelated, separate kinds of peace. They are three different expressions of one and the same peace. They are three facets of one character trait, and you cannot have one without the other. When we have peace with God, then we get the peace of God, then we can have peace with others. Now, let's look at these. And by the way, my outline is too ambitious. So don't worry, I'm going to cover the first two points today and come back to the third one next week. First of all is peace with God. You may not realize it if you're an unbeliever here today, but you are at war with God. The Bible says we all start out that way. Romans 5.10 says we are enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says we were hostile to God. We were in a state of rebellion. Our choice to do our own thing is in defiance of God. So we have gone AWOL spiritually. Or really worse than that, we are traitors because we have defected from God's side to the enemy's side so that we are in opposition to God. You say, well, Dan, I don't feel like I'm at war with God. Well, you know why you don't feel like you're at war with God? It's because he's holding his fire. Ever see on the news where uh, Palestinian youths are throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers and they've got guns and they're holding back, they're restraining themselves from shooting at those Palestinians? That's what God is doing to you. You're at war with God. You are throwing rocks at God, and he is holding his fire. But I will tell you this. He will not hold his fire forever. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were children of wrath. We were walking around with a bullseye on our back. We were in the crosshairs of the scope of God's shotgun of judgment. He just hadn't squeezed the trigger yet. You say, well, how do we make peace with God? Well, you can't have a peace conference with him. Because to have a peace conference, you have to have something to negotiate with. And you have nothing to negotiate with when it comes to God. So if there's going to be peace, God has to make peace. It has to be him who initiates it and him who accomplishes it. And that's exactly what he did. The Bible says in Colossians 1.20, he made peace through the blood of his cross. When Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, 
he was making peace between you and God. Now, how does he do that? Well, number one, he is the peace offering. He paid the debt that you could never pay. He takes the offense away. He took the wrath. He took the shotgun blast of the judgment of God. He died for your war crimes. So he is the peace offering. Secondly, the Bible tells us that he is now our mediator between God and man. Jesus takes you by the hand, and he takes God by the hand, and he brings us together. And he's the only one who can do that because each of those hands has a blood-stained scar. You say, well, what do I have to do? It's real simple. You have to surrender. As we often sing, you have to wave the white flag to God. So you can't make a truce with God. A truce says, you're going to stay over there, and I'm going to stay over here, and we'll define our boundary. It's not a truce. You come to God and you surrender. And usually when somebody surrenders, they expect to go to a concentration camp or they expect to go to, to a prison for war crimes. We surrender to God, and guess what? He's paid your debt. So we surrender to him and we say, God, whatever the terms are, we'll take those terms. And what are the terms? Peace. I love Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you really appreciate that. I don't think we can fully grasp that. But to go from being enemies of God to being his children and having peace with him is an amazing thing. Secondly, when we talk about peace, we're talking about peace within. Now, when we talk about peace within, we're not talking about a 1960s hippie peace. So you can't have peace within until you first have peace with God. When you get peace with God, then you get the peace of God in your heart. And just as we saw with love and with joy, this is God's peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. God, who five times in the New Testament is called the God of peace, and Jesus, who in Isaiah 9, 6 is called the Prince of Peace, has given his peace to you. You say, well, how can I tell if I've got peace within? Well, that's real easy. What's the opposite of peace? Well, in John 14, 27, after Jesus said, my peace I give to you, he said this, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
The opposite of peace is a troubled heart and a fearful heart. So here's the test of peace within. Peace doesn't worry. Peace doesn't sit around asking, what if? Peace rests in the assurance that God is in control. Now, for some of us, this raises an important question. You say, Dan, I've got peace with God, and I've got peace within, but I'm not always peaceful. Or to ask it another way, why is it that the upright get uptight? If I've got peace, if I've got God's peace inside of me, why am I not more peaceful? You know, sometimes people get arrested for disturbing the peace. I want to suggest this morning that some of us need to get arrested for disturbing the peace of God in our lives. And let me give you three ways you can disturb the peace in your life. Number one is looking in the wrong direction. The world around us says in order to have peace, you must go someplace, right? If you want peace, you need to go to the Bahamas, sit on a beach, drink with a straw out of a coconut, and you'll have peace. If you want peace, you need to go somewhere else. That's what the world says. Or the world says, if you want peace, you need to buy something. Get that thing you've always wanted, and you'll have peace. There are some things money can't buy for everything else. I can't remember even which card they're advertising. Get a credit card and buy it. If I just build that house, if I just drive that car, if I just wear those clothes, I'll have peace. The world says go somewhere and you'll have peace. Buy something and you'll have peace. Or the world says, ingest something and you'll have peace. If I get a prescription for a sedative, I'll have peace. Or if I drink three or four martinis every night, I'll have peace. If I ingest something artificial into my system, I can have peace. The world is always saying, peace is over here. Go there, buy that, ingest this. And if you are looking in those directions for peace, you know what you're doing? You're disturbing the peace. Listen to the words of Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. See, it doesn't matter if you're in the Bahamas or the boot heel. Doesn't matter if you live in a castle or a shack. Doesn't matter if you drive a Cadillac or a Pinto. If you want peace, you've got to look to the Lord. If you want peace, you've got to focus on Him and fix your mind on Him. When Peter was walking on the water, he had waves all around him. 
He had peace as long as he was looking at Jesus. When he looked at the waves around him, what happened? He got fearful, and he began to sink. Corey Ten Boom said, when I look at the world, I get distressed. When I look at myself, I get depressed. When I look at Jesus, I am at rest. Where are you looking for peace this morning? Well, let me say something profound. You might want to write this down. I don't say anything profound very often, but this is profound. And I think this is going to surprise you. The reason a lot of people don't find peace is because they're looking for it. You will never find peace by looking for peace. You will only find peace by looking for Jesus. John Wesley said, When I looked to Jesus, the bird of peace flew into my heart. When I looked at the bird of peace, it flew away. Great statement. You see, he understood that you have to look in the right direction. Second way you can disturb the peace in your life is by longing for the wrong solution. Most people think that you gain peace by subtraction. Most people think that peace is the absence of things in your life. If I can just get rid of the turmoil and the stress and the problems, then I'll have peace. Peace by subtraction. I don't know if you remember the Calgon commercial. A woman is being bombarded on every side, her children, her spouse, her employer, the phone is ringing, so she turns and she looks into the camera and she says, Calgon, take me away. We go to another scene and she's in a bathtub with bubbles all around her. And she has gotten rid of her problems. And we say, ah, I need some bubble bath. You see, that's the world's concept of peace. Because the world will say that peace is getting away from your problems. We're all familiar with the Hebrew word for peace. It's shalom. You know what shalom means? It means literally wholeness. Wholeness. And I think what God is saying is, peace is not the absence of something to make you less. It is the addition of something to make you whole. Peace is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of Jesus in the midst of your problems. That's why Jesus said this in John 16, He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus didn't promise to take away the tribulation. Jesus didn't promise to take away the problems. He promised that in him you would have peace 
in the midst of your problems. Did you know that disturbances on the sea, whether they be a hurricane or violent storms, never extend further down than 25 feet from the surface? Storms only affect the top fraction of the ocean. So you know what fish do when the waves are crashing and the wind is violent? They just go deeper into the ocean. And I would suggest to you that that's a great illustration of what God is calling us to do. When the storm is there and the waves are crashing and the wind is blowing, we need to go deeper in our relationship with the Lord. See, the storm's still there, but you have peace. Korean Christians when they were being persecuted under a socialist government, came up with a saying. They said, we're just like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. And the deeper you drive us, the more secure and peaceful we become. See, they understood that you have to look for the right solution. The solution isn't always to take you out of your problems. It's to give you peace in the midst of your problems. And then the third way you may be disturbing the peace this morning is living with the wrong attitude. Living with the wrong attitude. Mark Twain said, I am an old man and I have known a great many problems. Most of them never happened. Can you relate to that? How many of you here are warriors? Two? I assume the rest of you are liars. Most of us live and accept as normal a certain amount of anxiety a certain amount of worry, a certain amount of fear. We just say, that's the way I am, and we just kind of leave it there. You know, Jesus' disciples were worry warts. That's why he asked them this question in Matthew 6, 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add even 18 inches to his lifespan? What was Jesus saying? Worrying doesn't add to your life. Worrying robs from life. But most of us are like the guy who said, don't tell me that worrying doesn't work. I know better. The things I worry about never happen. Listen, peace and worry are mutually exclusive. You can worry and not have peace, or you can have peace and not worry. But you can't do both. Worry is from a German word that means to choke or to strangle. And Jesus used the word that way in the parable of the sower. 
He said, the worries of the world are like thorns that grow up and choke the word. Worries are like thorns on a, around a plant, and they grow up and they choke the word. Now, literally, they don't choke the word. What they do is they choke your faith in the word. They choke your confidence in the promises of God. Because when you worry, what you're really saying is, God, I don't believe you can handle this. When you worry, what you're really saying is, God, I think this problem is bigger than you. God, I think I better take over and try to fix this. Evelyn Underhill put it this way. She said, God works always in tranquility. Fuss and feverishness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and wobble, and every kind of hurry and worry, these, even on the highest levels, are signs of the self-made and self-acting soul. When I am worrying, it's a sign to me that I'm at work. And when I have peace, it's a sign to me that God is at work. You say, well, Dan, what's the antidote for anxiety? What's the antidote for worry? Well, let me show you a passage in closing. Look at Philippians chapter 4. You're probably familiar with it. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I want you to notice something out of this verse. Three things, really. Number one is the attitude. He says, be anxious for nothing, or stop worrying. That's where it starts. Now, what level of problem warrants worry? None. Because he says, be anxious for what? Nothing. There's nothing that fits in the category of, I've got to worry about this. So the attitude is stop worrying. You are to take all your cares and turn them into prayers. That's the attitude. Second, I want you to see the latitude. What are we to pray about? Everything. Everything. You see, if a care is too small to be a prayer, then it's too small to be a burden. Some of us carry things around and we say, this is too small for God. Well, it's awful big on your back. We're to turn every one of our cares into prayers, and we're to pray for everything. The attitude, stop worrying. The latitude, pray for everything. Thirdly is the gratitude. Notice what it says. With thanksgiving. Every time you pray, you're to pray with thanksgiving. We're to enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
And what are we to be thankful for? You see it here? Everything. Everything. Well, let me ask you this. When you pray, are you thankful for everything? Usually when we have a prayer meeting, we put praises over here and we put requests over here and we, we think they're totally different. God says everything's a praise. Everything's a praise. Even your problems. In 2 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, in everything give thanks. You say, well, Dan, it says in everything give thanks. So you're not to be thankful for everything. All right, let me give you another verse. This is Ephesians 5.20. Always giving thanks for all things. Everything that happens in your life, you're to bring before the Lord. And you're to be thankful for it. You say, well, how can I give thanks for all things? Well, you won't if you're looking in the wrong direction. If your prayer is, give me peace, you won't be thankful because you're looking at the peace rather than looking at Jesus. And you won't be thankful if you're looking for the wrong solution. If your prayer is, take away my problem, you're not going to be thankful for it because Jesus is the solution. And he wants you to invite him into the midst of the problem. He wants you to go deeper in your relationship with him rather than just say, take it away. And you won't be thankful if you're living with the wrong attitude. Some of us are filled with anxiety and we come to prayer. How can we be thankful? We have no room for thankfulness. We're filled with anxiety. Some of you are filled with anger at the person who hurt you. And it's the same thing. You're filled with that anger and you have no room for thankfulness for what God's doing. We see, if your prayer is, Lord, I want to find you. I want to find you in the midst of my problems. We sang it earlier. You are more than enough for me. No matter what's going on, God, you are more than enough for me. Come into the midst of my problems. Psalm 23 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What's the opposite of fear? Peace. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will have peace. Why? Because you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's your prayer. Lord, I need you in the midst of my problems. You can be thankful. And if your prayer is, Lord, use this problem to shape me and change me and make me more like Jesus, then you can be thankful for it. What did James say in the second verse of his letter? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be complete in Christ. 
You see, the trials that come into your life have a purpose. And if you're simply saying, take away the trial, you're missing the purpose. You can be thankful because God is using that stress in your life, that difficulty in your life, that pain in your life, that fire in your life to purify you. If you're saying, God, come into the midst of my problems and change me and make me more like Jesus, then you can be thankful even for a difficult, painful situation. You see, every prayer is a praise. Because when you come into prayer, who are you talking to? God. God. And he is the right direction. He is the right solution. And he will give you the right attitude. And we see that in verse 7, where God makes a promise. God gives us a promise in verse 7. And what is the promise? That he's going to take your problems away? No. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When your life is filled with prayer, submissive, thankful prayer, then your heart will be filled with peace. As we've gone through these first three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, I don't know if you've noticed, we have love that surpasses knowledge. We have joy that is inexpressible. And here he tells us we have peace that surpasses all comprehension. That's God's promise. The way we fulfill Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.15 to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is to pray. Prayer is the antidote to keep worry out and it's the key to keeping peace within. Think about Peter. When Peter was in the garden the night before the cross, he was sleeping when he should have been praying. Later in Acts chapter 12, he's in prison on death row and he's going to be executed the next morning. You know what he's doing? You say, I bet he's sleepless in prison. He's sleeping like a baby. And I don't mean waking up every three hours and crying. He's sound asleep. He was sleeping when he should have been praying in the garden. But when he's in prison, he's sleeping when he should have been worrying. Why? Because he had prayed. And we're told that the church was gathered together and was praying for Peter. And because those prayers were being made on his behalf, he experienced the peace of God. How in the world are you different? If you have peace with God, then you'll have peace within. You know how people see that in your life? 
Where does peace show up the brightest? Where are people going to see peace that passes understanding? Well, they're going to see it in the darkest valley. They're going to see it when you're in the deepest problem, the deepest pain. Those around you are looking at you and saying, are you going to react just like everybody else reacts in the dark valley? And when they see you in the dark valley, they see you in that problem, they see you in the midst of that pain, and they see that you are peaceful and you are thankful, then people say, I want that. I want that. That's the peace that I'm looking for. We're going to close our service by standing and singing together. As we do, I would ask you today to just be honest before the Lord. Just say, Lord, examine my heart and see where in my heart there's anxiety, there's worry, there's that that stress and difficulty and, 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 and worry that I sort of justify all the time. And Lord, today I'm coming to you in prayer and I'm going to give it up to you. I'm going to be thankful for the problems in my life and I'm going to allow you to fill me with your peace. Would you say that to the Lord today as we stand and close our service?